Well, it's always good to be reminded when you read a passage of Scripture like the one we just read. Um, Timothy, as you know, is being spoken to by the Apostle Paul in this letter, and and he's sort of a pastor-to-be, or he's presently pastoring. And Paul writes to Timothy and says in verse 6 that if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And what are those things? Matters of conscience. That's what 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5 talks about. And so I feel like I'm in good apostolic company this morning, that Paul would affirm the series that we're going through and say, hey, put that before the brothers. Hey, put that before the sisters. Make sure they understand what the conscience is, how the conscience functions, and this morning, how the conscience can go badly. So let's pray together, and then we're going to dive into that very subject. Father, we pause to ask your blessing. I am a man. I am nothing. Your word is everything. Your word contains power. Your word contains life. Your word contains instruction from your mouth. Your word breaks the cedars. Your word strips the forest bare. Your word regenerates the dead soul. Your word edifies the saints. Your word glorifies Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, come this morning. Add your power to the already powerful word and cause it to break through into our lives with life-changing, mind-altering, behavior-shifting, Christ-exalting power. That's what we want to happen, God. We don't want this to merely be a Bible study. We don't merely want this to be a time where I say things and we hear things. But may you come and add your indispensable, necessary, absolutely important blessing to all that we say and do in these next few minutes together. Bless us. Teach us for your servants. We are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1984, an Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain. Investigators studied the incident, and they made quite an eerie discovery. The black box cockpit recorders revealed that several minutes before an impact, before impact, a shrill computer-synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up, pull up. The pilot, evidently thinking that the system was somehow malfunctioning, snapped, shut up, gringo, and switched the system off. Minutes later, the plane plowed into the side of a mountain, and everyone on board died. When we read tragic stories like that or see things like that on the news shortly after it happens, it strikes me that it's a powerful parable of the way that we as modern people can sometimes treat the warning systems that God has built into our own conscience. The wisdom of our age would tell us that guilt feelings, the things we feel related to guilt or shame, are always hurtful and always wrong, and we should never listen to them. We should put them out of our minds. We should switch them off. And the conscience is generally seen by our modern culture as a defect, something that wars against our self-esteem and our pursuit of a higher, better self-image. Far from being a defect, though, or a disorder, brothers and sisters, our ability to sense our own guilt is a tremendous gift of God. He designed our consciences with that very framework so that as human beings with human souls, we could register wrongdoing. 
It's the automatic warning system that tells us before we crash, pull up, pull up, pull up. Our conscience is kind of like the nerve endings in our fingertips. Its sensitivity to external stimuli can be damaged by the buildup of calluses or even wounded so badly as to be virtually impervious to any sensation or feeling. This is the kind of conscience that we're going to speak of this morning. When the conscience gets calloused, when the conscience gets wounded, when the conscience gets seared, perhaps you've been deceiving other people. Perhaps you've cheated in your work, or, and I know it's summertime, so we're not in school, but have on schoolwork. Perhaps you're lying to those to whom you are called to be accountable in your life, and you are not telling them the truth of what's really going on. Perhaps you're defrauding your employer in some way, or your employees, or your customers. Perhaps you're being unfaithful to your spouse. There are a multitude of ways we could be triggering our consciences to rightly condemn us. And when you sin, a conscience that is rightly calibrated to God's word should be screaming at you to confess your sin, to turn from it, and to receive God's forgiveness. But what if it isn't? What if it isn't screaming? What if it's a dull hush? Or God forbid, it's silent. What might be some of the reasons it isn't screaming? We're going to look at four reasons, or three reasons, this morning. So this morning, what we're going to do is look at two different areas. We're going to talk about three marks of a bad conscience and three steps to a clean one. Three marks of a bad conscience and three steps to a clean conscience. Because as we read here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, you can damage your conscience in two opposite ways. By making it insensitive or by making it oversensitive. And I want to show you those two examples here that Paul gives in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now this is going to be more of a topical sermon. We're going to bounce around the New Testament and look at several different passages, but we're going to root our thinking here first in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and then we're going to move out from there. So let's look at the way Paul describes the way we can damage our consciences in two opposite ways, that is by making them insensitive or by making them oversensitive. First of all, insensitive. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. Paul's addressing that in the latter days, which we are in, there will be false teachers who will come and seek to lead people astray. And notice the conscience with which these false teachers are operating in verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. We're going to come back to what a seared conscience is, but here Paul lays out for us what what the reality that there is such a thing as a seared conscience. A seared conscience is when we make our conscience so insensitive by developing a habit of ignoring its voice of warning so that the conscience gets weaker and weaker and weaker and finally disappears altogether. That's what we have right here. These men will not be corrected. They cannot be corrected. There is no hope for them. Their consciences are gone. 
But notice also in verse 3, Paul gives the oversensitive conscience, which is a mark, ironically, of those who have seared consciences. He says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So here, a seared conscience is manifested by one conscience that is packed all kinds of extra biblical rules onto it and then forcing other people to, to submit to those extra biblical rules. In fact, one mark of a seared conscience is calling what God calls good evil. That's a scary state. And Siri, you have got to stop this. Okay, maybe she'll be quiet now. For some, Somehow she picked up my voice and she is writing all this down for you guys. She's keeping it all, all for you. So if you need notes, we'll talk to Siri later on. But you put too many rules. That these, these people, these, these teachers, are forbidding marriage. Who created marriage? Who said it was very good? Part of his very good original creation. It was God who did that, but yet they're forbidding what God has declared to be good. Requiring abstinence from certain foods. Who created food? Who said to Peter when the sheet was coming down, Eat it all! There's no restrictions by God on specific categories of food. And yet, these false teachers are forbidding Christians from taking part in eating certain things. And God, he says that God created them to be received with thanksgiving. That is, we are to bow our heads and thank God that he has given it to us. And if we can do that with a clean conscience, we should receive it as a gift of God. Nothing is to be rejected, Paul says, if it's received with thanksgiving because it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. We're going to get into that more in coming weeks. But suffice it to say, I want you to see that their consciences have gone badly. They're not functioning correctly. And so this morning we're going to dive into three marks of a bad conscience, three manifestations of a bad, con- of, of a, of a bad conscience. And the first one is the weak, weak conscience. Now this is going to go in a progressively downward direction. Okay, this is manifested from bad to worse. Okay, so we're going to start with a weak conscience. Go with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to look at a couple of, couple of verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And you will see the phrase weak conscience used by the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. However, Paul says, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. So again, this is the first century. This is early Christians in Corinth. And they are eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And they cannot calibrate their conscience to do that to the glory of God. They, they somehow attribute that that sacrifice to that idol is their participation in worship of that idol. And Paul says, that's a weak conscience. That's a weak conscience. That is not the case but these people believe it to be the case. 
We also see in verse 10 something similar where Paul says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, that is, who don't have a problem, eating meat sacrificed to idols, recognizing that an idol doesn't exist, there's no such thing as a real idol, it's all fabricated, man-made, imaginary stuff. Paul says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat eat food offered to idols? Now, Paul's making an argument there for how Christians are to relate Strong, Christians with strong consciences are to relate to Christians with weak consciences. That's a sermon in two weeks, so I'm not going to say anything about that right now. One more, verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers, that is, if we were to go ahead knowing that that brother has a weak conscience and eat meat sacrificed to idols in his presence, we, Paul says, would be sinning against our brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, and therefore we sin against Christ. Because the strong should be the first to say, I don't need to do that. Because I love my brother more than I like a steak. So we get here the image of a weak conscience. A weak conscience can also be called a wounded or a defiled conscience, according to what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 8. In this case, the conscience is affected by past sin. Do you see that in chapter 8, verse 7? Food. Paul says, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat. See, a lot of times what triggers our conscience to be weak is our past sinful life and the associations that we have with our previous sinful life with the things we currently practice. You need to know that. You need to know that. You need to know that as a mark of growth in Christ as a mark of discipleship, as an act of understanding more how you conform your mind more to what the Bible says and not just how you feel. But instead of having a conscience that allows us to get away with things that we should do, that God would permit us to do according to his word, that are not sin, a weak conscience accuses us of things that are not really wrong. When our conscience tells us not to do something, even though we have complete freedom and liberty to do it, that is a weak conscience. It is a conscience where God has not set a law. He has not made a command. In fact, he may have given the opposite command. And yet, for some reason, we can't bring ourselves to accept what God has said, or we misunderstand what God has said, and we, our consciences will not allow us to participate. John MacArthur gives a helpful summary of what a weak conscience is when he writes the following. He says, A weak conscience is usually hypersensitive to sin and overreactive and overactive about issues that are not sins. Ironically, a weak conscience is more likely to accuse than a strong conscience. Scripture calls this a weak conscience because it is too easily wounded. People with weak consciences tend to fret about things that should provoke no guilt in a mature Christian who knows God's truth, end quote. So weak consciences can tend to be slaves to their thinking about their past sin, their their current feelings about things, rather than what does the Word say? What does Scripture teach? What does the Bible say? So that would be an, an example of a weak conscience. And brothers and sisters, we have brothers and sisters here this morning who have them. Every church has believers who have weak consciences. And we need to recognize that. That's not just a first century reality. That's a current day reality. 
and we're going to learn how to relate to people with, with weak consciences, and weak consciences are going to learn how to relate to strong consciences, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks when we address that. But for now, that's what a weak conscience is. Do you have one? You need to know that it's weak. If it's hypersensitive and feels that things are wrong that God has not said are wrong, you likely have a weak conscience. And part of God's work in your life will be discipling you to conform your mind more to Scripture than how you feel. Number two, evil conscience. Evil conscience. Now, Jonathan Poland, our, our, our worship leader, has led us through, helpfully, I think, the last couple of weeks, Hebrews chapter uh, 10, uh, 10, verses 19 through 22. And that phrase, evil conscience, is used in that text. An evil conscience is one that's not, that, that yes, has weakness to it, but has gone a step farther. It's actually one that is being accused of wrongdoing legitimately, but that wrongdoing is not dealt with. That wrongdoing is not repented of or made correct. When that little voice in your head, whether by the light of nature or common grace or by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, keeps convicting you of sin and you keep on doing the same thing you know to be sin, that's an evil conscience. It is not screaming at you the way it should. It's a conscience that is ignored and not dealt with. And this is a, this is a reality that we have to recognize. Psalm chapter, or the first psalm, talks about such a downward progression. Remember when the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In Psalm 1, we have a downward progression there. We have a walking, we have a standing, and we have a sitting. A growing comfort with wickedness. That's the way wickedness works. That's the way sin works. Sin never ruins your life with one take. It never does. It takes slowly. Slowly, imperceptibly. Which is why it's so scary and why we need our Savior to defend us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And why we have the precious gift of the Holy Spirit to sensitize us to sin and cause us to flee unrighteousness and hate our sin and never get comfortable with it. Praise God for our precious Holy Spirit and His precious Holy Spirit who lives within us. But there's this downward progression in Psalm 1. There's this immunity to the sickness of sin that can build up over time. We acclimate ourselves to its seductive lure and become numb to the conscience's influence. It's like the proverbial frog in the kettle. If you drop the frog, you all know the illustration, if you drop the frog in boiling water right away, it hops right out. But if you put it in at room temperature and then slowly heat it, it will eventually be cooked to death. Sin doesn't destroy us at once. It destroys us like the frog in the kettle. It turns up the temperature a little at a time. Sin is immensely patient with its victims. This is the case with David. David, for a period of his reign as king of Israel, operated with an evil conscience. How do we know? Well, David's sin with Bathsheba had recurring consequences for him, but also, according to the prophet Nathan, it had recurring consequences and judgment for his family. 
And one of those consequences was the dulling of his kingly judgment. After he had committed adultery and murder, his discernment suffered a marked decline. Read 2 Samuel. It's sad. It's really sad. Particularly with respect to his family. He developed a blind spot with the sins in his family where he was not able to deal justly anymore. He did not notice the lust of Amnon for his sister Tamar. And he also did not punish Amnon for raping Tamar. Even though Leviticus 18, 9 and 11 and Leviticus 20, verse 17 gave laws against incest. And not just incest, but rape, even worse, which is what Amnon did with Tamar. Deuteronomy 27, 22, God pronounces a curse on this kind of behavior, and yet David did not. As God's kingly representative, to rule as God's representative over the nation of Israel and to do justice, David was failing. And then he didn't see the hatred of his own son Absalom for Amnon, and he was tricked into sending Amnon to his own death. When people, brothers and sisters, and this is fearful, when people fall, when we fall, into grievous sin, our moral senses are inevitably affected and our ability to detect evil is deadened. To play with sin is to play with fire as God hands people over to moral confusion and transgression the more they indulge in it. This is why Psalm 81 verses 11, 12 says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. What was the result? So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. That's handing someone over to an evil conscience. It's handing someone over, he calls it a stubborn heart here, but it's a heart that's resolved to do what it wants to do regardless of what God says. This is again what we see Paul pick up on in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, when he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's an evil conscience, and it should strike fear in all of our hearts. Thirdly, and worst of all, is a seared conscience. And this is what Paul speaks of in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He speaks of, quote, the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, this is going one step further than an evil conscience, and two steps further than a weak conscience. A seared conscience is one that has been so cauterized that it cannot feel conviction and guilt anymore. At this stage, the conscience has been so ignored that it no longer works. A seared conscience is completely out of whack. It celebrates what is impure, and it denigrates what is good. It's like frostbite. If you go outside, you know this, without your gloves on in the wintertime, especially when the temperatures are well below zero, your hands get cold and start to hurt, and that's bad. But what's worse is when they stop hurting. That's what's worse. If you were outside long enough, the pain actually starts to go away. And this is when you're in real danger. When there's no longer any pain felt, the nerve endings are so damaged that frostbite is starting to set in. 
And so when we do something we know we shouldn't do that God's word forbids, we feel that twinge of conscience. We feel pain like we do in our extremities when we're outside in the cold. Yet if we persist in doing what is foolish, there comes a time when we start to feel better about it. Like it's not a big deal. I mean, I haven't been wiped off the earth for it yet. God hasn't killed me yet. In fact, I'm getting promotions. Life's going better than it ever did when I was walking with the Lord. And we no longer even consider it wrong. The bad stuff doesn't feel so bad anymore, which is when we're in great spiritual peril. And that's the danger of having a seared conscience. It's fearful stuff, but it's biblical stuff. So we have to deal with it. Now, we're going to spend the next 10 minutes or so talking about the blessed goodness of the gospel and the way God works to cleanse our consciences and make them clean, and we can, we're going to praise God for that. But I just want you to sit here and think for a second. These are real situations. These are real issues, and I, no doubt I don't have omniscience, but I would be foolish to not think that all three forms of conscience are present in our own assembly this morning. There is... A weak conscience, there is a weak, which is also wounded and defiled. There is a evil conscience, and there is a seared conscience. Weak consciences and evil consciences can be dealt with by the Lord. Seared consciences cannot and won't be because they are a mark of God giving someone over in hardness as a form of judgment. But praise God, if you are here this morning... By God's grace, as one of his children who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, you should have no fear of a seared conscience. You should have no fear of it. Because God's Spirit is going to convict you <laughs> and lead you and, in fact, sensitize your conscience. In fact, even as God's people, we, we, will, we experience this in an ongoing way. The Holy Spirit working in such a way as to wake us up and bring us to ourselves and renew us in our minds. So, understanding what the conscience is and how it works should encourage you, I want a clean conscience. I want a good conscience. You don't want to travel down the pathway from a weak, wounded, defiled, evil to a seared conscience. While the conscience can be weak and evil or seared, the goal that the Bible holds out for us as God's people is to have a good conscience, a clean conscience. The importance of pursuing a clean conscience is so important in the New Testament that we may have overlooked it. And that's why we're going to spend some time talking about it. So we're going to talk about three steps to a clean conscience. How do we get there? What are the steps that we take to achieve or acquire a clean conscience? Here's the first step. A clean conscience is provided through the gospel. A clean conscience is a free gift of God through the work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Now, how can I say that? I want you to look at the book of Hebrews again. Turn with me back to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at a few verses in chapter 9, a few verses in chapter 10, and see the glorious work of Christ as applied to our consciences and see that a good conscience, a clean conscience, is provided to us through the gospel. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, the second half of the verse. It says, According to this arrangement, that is the old covenant administration of sacrifices, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So it said, Old Testament saints, when they're seeing all those bulls and goats uh, being sacrificed on behalf of their sins, that could never perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But what could? 
Notice it only deals, verse 10, deals only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of redemption. But then look at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There it is. The work of Christ, the blood of Christ, is God's given agent for purifying the conscience. Then look at chapter 10. For since the law has put a shadow of the good things to come, is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So what can? Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There it is. There's the hope. By his single offering on the cross, he has perfected us for all time. That is, those of us who are being made perfect. Made perfect. The wonderful juxtaposition of justification and sanctification there. But then we see in verse 22 this precious promise. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to redeem all who trust in Christ. God forgives and covers all their sin and never counts that sin against them for all eternity because he counted that sin against Christ instead. Only this message can comfort a non-Christian's guilt-racked conscience, or for that matter, a Christian's guilt-racked conscience. A clean conscience is provided through the gospel. But here's the ironic thing. Once you come to Christ, you may be surprised that your conscience actually doesn't fall silent. It becomes even stronger. Perhaps you've had thoughts like, man, I feel worse now than I did then. We can all remember this. Remember this for those of us who've been in the faith a while. As babes in Christ, we were like, I felt bad before I came to Christ, but like then I came to Christ and I started to feel worse. Well, why? Because you have the Holy Spirit in your life and he's turned the light up. And those cockroaches that you didn't see before are starting to flee to the corners. And you're like, whoa, I didn't realize how sinful I was. You think things like, if I'm making progress toward holiness with the help of the Spirit, why do I keep feeling like I'm a worse sinner than before? 
I thought becoming a Christian was supposed to relieve my conscience. It seems like becoming a Christian supercharged it. And that's exactly what happened. Because when the Holy Spirit invaded your life, and when he came in, he supercharged your conscience by writing God's law on your heart in the new covenant. And you got a heart of flesh, and your heart of stone is gone. And that heart of flesh is full of the law of God. It's full of all of God's righteousness. It's full of desiring what God desires. And when you act and behave in ways that are against that, your conscience accuses you. Here's an image. You probably have seen, maybe you've seen this before. Some theologians or pastors or Bible teachers call this the cross chart. I think it's going to be up there, right? Got the cross chart, AV team? There's the cross chart. Thank you. So the cross chart, if you think about it, this is, this is what your life... So to the left is the time you were not in Christ before you were a Christian, and you're just living your life, and you're living your life, and all of a sudden God invades your life, and you're converted. You hear the gospel, you repent and believe, you become a Christian... And then you start growing. But here's what you're growing. You're growing, but you're having a growing awareness of God's holiness while at the same time you're having a growing awareness of your sinfulness. And those are both growing at the same time. So the reality is you feel like you're getting further and further away from God. Because God's holiness and bigness and greatness and purity are growing in your life. You're growing in your understanding of God. You're growing in your knowledge of God. But you're also growing in your understanding of your sinfulness and just how much you fall short. And so that gap is ever widening. You didn't think that gap was pretty big at the beginning of your Christian life. It was, you just didn't feel it that way. But as you grow and grow and grow and grow, you feel like God's a mile away. But here's the truth. What's happening to the cross in that picture? The cross is getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more important and more central. So when you meet a godly, seasoned, mature Christian who's walked with Christ a long time, They say things like, I'm a wretch and Jesus is awesome. Praise God for his salvation of Christ. Christ is all. Christ is all. Christ is all. I have no other hope apart from him. Because they know how holy God is, at least they've grown in that understanding, and they've grown in their understanding of their sinfulness, but yet the grace of God through the cross of Christ has become more and more precious to them. So it doesn't cause them to live in just dread and fear. No, it it causes them to live with gratitude to Jesus who has bridged the gap and he's bigger to them now than he's ever been. And so that's what you have to look forward to. If you're new in the faith here, if you're newer to the Christian life and you've just been walking with God for a little while, you have this to look forward to or that to look forward to. You have to look forward to growing more and more in understanding of God's holiness and more and more in the understanding of your sinfulness, but you also get the joy of growing in your understanding of what Christ has done to bridge that gap. And that's what produces worship and obedience in our hearts. So, quickly, second thing. That's the main thing. A clean conscience is offered to us through the gospel. If you came in this morning uh, feeling like you have an evil conscience, a conscience that is racking you with guilt, a conscience that keeps you up at night, you feel terrible about the things you've done, and you would love to just have a clean conscience, I'll tell you, Jesus will give it to you this morning. You come to him and you you fall down and you, you lay all your sins at his feet and say, Jesus, I give you all of my sin, all my sin record, everything that I've done, everything that I haven't done that you expected me to do. I failed it at all. There's tons of sin that I don't even know about, and I bring it to you. Please cleanse my conscience from all my evil deeds and grant me a right standing with the Father. He will give it to you. You will experience a clean conscience through the gospel. It's a promise of the work of Christ.
Secondly, a clean conscience is procured through baptism. Now, I use this word procured very carefully. I'm trying to use it in the way that Peter would approve of. So look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a tough text. It's debated a lot, but I think the main point is pretty crystal clear even when the details remain a little bit shady. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Peter writes, Baptism, which corresponds to this. We'll come back to what that this is in a second. That's important for understanding the verse. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not, not as a removal of dirt from the body, so he's trying to say, listen, it's not like magic water. We're not talking about baptism as somehow like it's sa- saving you like a mag- you get in the magic water and then you get in the kingdom of God. No, that's not the point. He makes it clear. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So notice he ties baptism to the conscience here. Now, while this passage does not teach that the act of baptism is saving, Peter is very clear that baptism saves you in this sense, not as some mere physical act, but as an inward spiritual act. That is an appeal to God for or from a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the trust that Peter's talking about here, the object of faith is not the water. It's the Christ who has been raised from the dead who offers the clean conscience. And so what he's saying here is baptism is our public appeal to God to cleanse our guilty conscience, to forgive our sins, and give us new life in the resurrected Christ. That's the way baptism functions as an agent, as an additional help in securing a clean conscience. Because it's an appeal to God. From faith, trusting in the work of the resurrected Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, verse 22, And through that trust, through that appeal to God, through that act of faith, our consciences are made good. Peter is comparing the waters of judgment in Noah's day with the waters of judgment in baptism. As we are immersed into the water, we are reminded that we deserve death for our sin, just like those who died in the flood. And coming up from the water reminds us that we are kept safe by the ark of Christ and have risen to walk in newness of life. It was only because we were safe in the boat. And the boat is Jesus. And we're we're raised to walk in newness of life. It's a way of saying to God with our whole body, I trust you to take me into Christ like Noah was taken into the ark and to make Jesus the substitute for my sins and to bring me through these waters of death and judgment into new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus my Lord. Thirdly and finally, a clean conscience is protected through obedience. A clean conscience is protected through obedience. Just a few verses here and then we'll be done. Acts chapter 23, Paul in the book of Acts writes the following about his desire for maintaining a good conscience and he's doing it through his obedience to God. Acts 23, while he's before the council preparing to receive a judgment, he says, and looking intently at the brothers, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So one of the ways that we maintain a good conscience is to consciously, quorum Deo, before the face of God, 
live our lives perpetually in his presence. Living our lives perpetually mindful. My God is watching. My God is here. My God is, my God is with me. And recognizing that and living in light of that. And that's what Paul said he was endeavoring to do. He says it again in Acts 24, verse 16. He says, so I always take pains. So he works hard at this. Take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. You can read the context to see the sort of things he does to contribute to having and maintaining that clear conscience. He put himself through a lot. Obedience was costly for Paul. I mean, the spirit telling him, listen, it's going to go bad for you as you go into the city. You're going to get arrested. And he's going to go, oh, okay, do I disobey God like Jonah and run for the hills? Or do I maintain a clean conscience before God and obey him? He took pains to maintain a clear conscience because he knew as soon as he fled and disobeyed God as an apostle, he was going to be smitten in his conscience for all the ways he was not following God and following the orders of his resurrected Savior, Jesus. We also see it in the book of Hebrews again, just a few more verses, and then we're going to pray. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 18. The writer to the Hebrews underscores how we maintain a clear conscience He says, pray for us that we are sure, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. So that's how we maintain a clear conscience. We act honorably. We act obediently. We seek to honor God in all things. And then finally, 1 Peter again, chapter 3, verse 16, underscores the importance of obedience again for maintaining a clean conscience having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So what's, what's drawing the good conscience? Good behavior in Christ. Obedience to Christ. And so he's saying, you're going to get slandered for that? Don't expect that you're doing anything wrong. You think sometimes because we get slandered for things, we get told we're doing things wrong, that that's because we are doing things wrong. Not here. They are obeying Jesus. They are doing exactly what they're called to do, and they're getting slandered for it. And he says, listen, you have good behavior in Christ. You're getting the same thing Jesus got. Don't feel condemned in your conscience. You're obeying the Lord. If you want more on how to protect your conscience through obedience, during our first John sermon series, um, there was a sermon called The Cure for a Condemning Heart. You can look that up on our website, and that will take you more into this whole aspect of how obedience is is used as a protection for a clean conscience. Well, we're going to pray, but I just ask you to reflect now on where you are with this. Weak, evil, seared, three marks of a bad conscience. But a clean conscience is wonderfully offered. It's provided through the gospel, procured through baptism. It's protected through obedience. May God help us as we seek to live and walk in his ways. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for the time that we have had in your word this morning. Thank you for Um, It's teaching about the conscience. Thank you for the ways it addresses us, but also convicts us. But at the same time, it comforts us with the reality of what the gospel in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ offers for guilty, weak, sinful, defiled people like ourselves. Apart from your grace, we are all plagued by an evil conscience. And we would be trapped in a seared conscience were it not for your invasive, powerful grace in our lives, rescuing us from ourselves, rescuing us from our propensities to self-rule and sin, rescuing us to yourself that we might be your joyful children, serving you all of our days for the joy that is set 
before us. So thank you, Father, for this time in your word. Bless it to each of us as we each have need and lead us forward in your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.